0: Hello. Uh, today we have a new episode of the Vector Podcast, and today I'm super happy to to have Yusuf Sangos with me. He uh, um, holds the role of AI research engineer at um, Quadrant. It's a vector search database company, and. Uh, Uh, You might remember we had an episode with Tom Lackner, who is the user of Quadrant. Today, we have uh, an episode um, and discussion with Yusuf, who works for Quadrant. And one of the core topics today, we're going to be discussing uh, metric learning. But before that, hey, Yusuf, how are you doing? Hi, Dimitri.
1: Uh, I'm excited to join you in this episode to discuss metric learning. And thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming up. Uh, really, I think this topic is something that has been crossing you know, my, my area of focus and also some of the questions that users are asking. You know, OK, if I have this data set, how can I be sure that it will work uh, with neural search? Right? And I think metric learning seems to be one of the answers. But b- before we, we start discussing this in, deep, um, in depth, I was thinking, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah,
1: sure. Um, I'm a software software developer and AI researcher with a background in uh, linguistics at the university. Uh, Actually, I've been developing software since my high school years. Uh, During my master's study, I combined my experience and my uh, education to study machine translation. After uh, several years of experience uh, in different roles and uh, at different startups, uh, I uh, ended up with uh, multi-model retrieval because I had a, a long experience Uh, in both computer vision and uh, natural language processing. So for some time, my main focus is uh, metric learning. Uh, And I was already a user of Quadrant even before joining uh, Quadrant. And I thought uh, it would be very cool uh, to work for an open source project that
0: I find uh, valuable myself. Yeah, sounds awesome. Sounds cool. And um, you just mentioned multimodal. Um, so you mean like multimodal search, right? And uh, can you maybe, I think this field is still kind of uh, in many ways shaping up and uh, many people are still learning and kind of scratching their heads like, what is multimodal? Like, maybe if you could give like an example or a little bit explain what is multimodal. Yes, sure.
1: Uh, actually, uh, as you just said, multimodal is uh, quite a, a new uh, topic, uh, actually. Uh, actually, it's uh, resurrecting uh, with uh, developments in deep metric uh, learning. Um, one of the most famous applications is uh, Clip by uh, OpenAI. Uh, short for contrastive language image, uh, the pre-training. Uh, in the uh, most basic term, they uh, train a model uh, to construct a unified vector space for both uh, images and uh, test. uh Basically, they have uh, two encoders, one for images and one for uh, text. Uh, Suppose that you have a pair of an image uh, and it's textual uh, description. Uh, when you feed this image and that uh, textual description to these encoders, uh, you are supposed to get uh, very, very similar uh, vectors, uh, vector output from these uh, encoders. Uh, th- 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 so you can search uh, images with a,
0: a textual query uh, or vice uh, versa. Mm-hmm. So you sort of cross the uh, so in a way, like one modality is text or image is another modality, but in this case, we kind of like cross. Go across yeah, modalities, actually,
1: right? Basically, we, we can not cross the border of modalities uh, <laughs> uh, with this technique.
0: Yeah, yeah. which I think to, to many users will sound like uh, magic because you essentially, if you view an image like a set of pixels and uh, if you view query, textual queries, as a set of words, now you sort of like somehow magically you know, search your words in pixels, but actually that's not exactly what's happening. You know, of course we, we do the embedding and, and and so on, but 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 in a nutshell, it kind of like sounds like this magical, you know, magical cross model search there.
1: Yes, exactly. For uh, newcomers it's uh, a little bit like uh, magic, uh, but uh, from quite a long time, Uh, we have already been uh, using vector search uh, in the context of uh, image search. But uh, in that case, we uh, search for images uh, with a uh, query, uh, which is image itself. Uh, But but in this case, uh, we make a connection between uh, two, uh, Two modalities. Actually, this is also how uh, our human brain uh, is functioning. Uh, for the most, uh, for the most uh, of the time, uh, we don't u- consume the information from a single uh, modality. Uh, actually, uh, when we uh, try to understand our uh, environment we uh, we both uh, take it as a visual input and also uh, an audio, audio uh, input and we also talk to uh, people around uh, them so it gives us a better uh, understanding of the uh, environment so uh, If we want to make uh, our AI smarter, we also uh, need to uh, help them gain this ability as well. Uh, So beyond uh, searching for uh, images with a textual uh, query, uh, this also helps us uh, to combine uh, information from different sources. Uh, So in this case, uh, maybe uh, we can also uh, help AI better understand uh, its environment by combining, uh, for example, a stream from the uh, camera and also maybe uh, an output uh, from uh, speech recognition and encoding Uh, them into a vector, then uh, we can combine these two vectors to feed uh, into uh, that encoder. Uh, So this uh, also opens such uh, new opportunities.
0: Yeah, yeah, That's that's a great intro there. Also like how you gave analogy with how human brain functions, so like how we take so many Uh, signals into our decision-making, right? Um, And and specifically, like what you mentioned about CLIP, um, I I, I like the fact that um, in practical settings, let's say, if you have images, let's say, of some goods, right? And you want to make a search in those goods, and you also have some metadata, let's say, uh, titles or descriptions, right? It may be that some human decided um, what to put in that text, but they didn't put everything that there is on the image, right? And, and so I think clip helps us to find um, sort of semantics that's hidden inside the image itself, right? So I think that's kind of like pra- pra- has practical uh, impact on what we build. Uh,
1: yeah, exactly. Uh, actually uh, it, in the traditional, uh, search, for example, let's uh, get, an, get the product search as an example. When you want to uh, d- develop a product search for, uh, for example, uh, an e-commerce uh, website, you need to uh, enter different uh, terms that can define that product to have uh, users find that a product with different uh, wording, but uh, this is not so practical uh, because uh, people use very different terms to refer to things. Uh, and you, in, uh, in the current uh, capacity of e-commerce websites, we have uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, products and uh, they also need to be updated uh, once you add new products and uh, remove uh, new products. Uh, and add uh, also like uh, miss, uh, actually add typos to this complexity. So it's uh, actually uh, explored to uh, millions, maybe tens of uh, millions of. Uh, possibilities. This is beyond the power of uh, humans, uh, actually. Uh, but once you make a connection, uh, make a connection between a text uh, and uh, images, you don't need to uh, enter such uh, descriptive uh, text. You only uh, encode images into uh, vectors and index them into a a vector database, then in the inference time, all you need is just uh, encode the textual uh, input as well and query that pre-indexed database to uh, get similar results. Uh, Actually, this also, uh building uh, new opportunities for example people usually um, enter some uh, predefined uh, textual descriptors in this uh, search engines uh, but some new products may have uh, brand new features that uh, people are not uh, accustomed to so Uh, even in this case our uh, vector search based uh, solution that combines images and text can bring that image as well.
0: Yeah that sounds cool so it kind of opens up a lot of opportunities that didn't exist before when we modeled our object uh, uh, purely through textual you know representation right Uh, maybe somebody did attempt to also encode uh, images or some other binary format, but I think maybe it wasn't as efficient, or uh, definitely not multimodal. Um, so that 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 sounds so cool. And 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 so how do you um, how do you connect? Like where do you start usually? Let's say if you have a data set, right, um, and you want to um, implement neural search um, experience. Um, at what point of t- of time do you start thinking about uh, what the metric is the best for my data set and also how, how do you approach it? Uh, from, from which angle do you usually approach this? And this is something that really happy to hear your theoretical as well as practical thoughts on this.
1: That's good. Uh, actually, there, there are lots of uh, very different techniques and uh, methods and approaches to uh, metric learning that can uh, work for uh, some specific types of uh, problems. But uh, in my practical uh, experience, I usually begin with, uh, with, with an uh, autoencoder, because it's uh, already uh, super easy to implement and uh, easy to uh, train. Uh, it can be applied to almost any uh, data type. Uh, basically, in autoencoders, we have uh, two models, in- an encoder and a, a decoder. The uh, encoder part uh, encodes samples into uh, n-dimensional uh, vector. This uh, n should be uh, much, Lower than the uh, dimensionality of the uh, input sample, uh, and the decoder is supposed to reconstruct the input sample uh, when this uh, encoded vector uh, is given to uh, given to it. So uh, this is a self-supervised method. So uh, it can be applied to any uh, type of data set. You don't need uh, labels, and uh, it usually gives uh, very good uh, results. After uh, training such a model, you can uh, visualize uh, embeddings. We call the outputs uh, of the encoder Uh, the vector embeddings. So uh, you can uh, visualize such embeddings with a tool. Uh, This tool can be, for example, uh, TensorFlow uh, projectors and another tool by uh, Huber. I just uh, couldn't remember the name, sorry. (laughs) Uh, No worries, we can find Uh, those links later, I guess, yeah yeah we can uh, put a link in the description uh, and this uh, v- visualization tools helps us uh, see if uh, our encoders really encode similar samples uh, near to each closer to each other uh, than dissimilar uh, ones uh, If it is, we can use this uh, encoder part. We can just uh, dispose the decoder part and we can simply uh, keep the encoder part and use it to encode our uh, samples and index them in the uh, vector. Uh, And we can uh, already uh, start uh, searching semantically. Uh, But we usually, uh, do better than this one with a only small uh, set of labeled data, and you actually need only uh, a few uh, with that one. Actually, we are preparing some publications to uh, demonstrate uh, this one. Uh, after you train uh, an autoencoder with uh, a the uh, considerable number of unlabeled uh, data, all, all you need to do is just uh, fi- to fine-tune it with a small uh, set of labeled data. On the supervised fa- site, uh, there are uh, really uh, a quite number of very different uh, approaches to matrix learning, uh, f- from uh, more traditional margin-based uh, approaches to uh, newer uh, categorization-based uh, approaches, uh, and actually, it they deserve uh, a long discussion of their own. Uh,
0: I think <laughs> for sure, yeah, that, that's awesome. So, but like, just to unpack it a little bit, so. In a natural metric learning process allows me to learn the optimal distance metric for my data right so like it's kind of like a function of my data set properties inner properties.
1: yeah actually uh, let's clarify this uh, metric thing what does it mean uh, in this context. Uh, In this context a metric is a, a non negative. Uh, function uh, with two inputs, let's say X and Y, uh, and uh, it is used to measure what is called the distance between X and Y. Uh, When we feed such two inputs, it gives us a a, a scalar uh, positive value. If this value is uh, closer to zero, uh, then we can assume that uh, those uh, two inputs are more similar to each other. With two inputs with a a higher uh, higher distance uh, value, so our uh, whole objective uh, in metric learning is. to uh, train uh, such functions that can give give us uh, this distance uh, value. Uh, On the practical uh, side, we usually uh, train uh, a model that outputs uh, a vector, uh, an n-dimensional vector, uh, and then we can uh, apply different distance functions such as uh, euclidean and cosine uh, distance to to get a measurement of the uh, this uh, distance value uh, there is also a term uh, deep metric learning uh, actually uh, the traditional metric learning uh, uses uh, some uh, linear transformations to project uh, samples into uh, n-dimensional feature space to apply uh, a metric function. Uh, But this uh, linear aspect of such transformations limit the use of uh, traditional metric learning in uh, using them with uh, more richer uh, data types, for example, images and uh, text. So uh, deep matrix learning uh, benefits from uh, the methods of deep learning uh, to to learn non-linear transformations uh, to project samples into Uh, a new n-dimensional vector space. Uh, But uh, in this uh, context, I uh, usually uh, use metric learning as an umbrella term to refer to both traditional metric learning and uh, deep metric learning, just like uh, we do with machine learning to refer to both classical machine learning and deep learning as well.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, thank you. And and so, so essentially, like in the layman terms, you know, deep learning allows us to vectorize, you know, de- data objects that previously we couldn't uh, vectorize necessarily, right? So like images, or I don't know, yeah, um, actually... a- and then do it efficiently, right? Because like in images, you might have way too many pixels. So if you just take the vector yeah. of all the pixels, it, it's way too big of an object to deal with, right? And so you you vectorize as you said in the beginning and you basically sort of uh, uh, project it in a lower dimensional space so now you can actually efficiently operate on it right uh,
1: exactly Uh, let's uh,
0: get the get images uh, as
1: an example let's assume that we have images uh, with a size of uh, 200 times 200, and uh, we also uh, have a, a channel uh, channel value of three. So we end up with 200 times, 200 times three values for a single uh, image. Uh, and also that's, uh, actually too many values uh, also mean Uh, a great uh, variance uh, value, so it's not so practical to make a measurement between uh, two uh, images, because those pixel values uh, can uh, encode very uh, surface, uh, quite uh, uh, shallow surface uh, features. Uh, that do not make uh, any sense uh, in our uh, semantics. But once we uh, encode those uh, high dimensional inputs into a low dimensional uh, vector space, uh, for example, we usually have uh, 512, uh, uh, 1024, uh, dimensional uh, vectors, uh, and this value is uh, really low when compared to the original uh, dimension of uh, that sample. So in this case, uh, that model uh, should learn uh, the it should learn uh, a representation uh, of uh, high dimensional. Uh, samples uh actually we just uh throw the uh unnecessary (laughs) part of those samples and we only keep the uh keep the part that matters for
0: us Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so um kind of in some sense you could say it's like um signal compression right so in, in some sense like using the um (laughs) <laughs> the, the the signal law like the distribution you could actually compress things like i don't know if um, yeah, theoretically speaking in an image you have like one object and the rest is just the background of one color you really don't need to pass all these uh, pixels independently like you could just say okay it's a it's it's a background i've learned that it's that color kind of semantically i guess and uh, and then what matters is the object somewhere there that we focus on when we look at this picture right
1: yeah uh, exactly actually uh, in in the original uh, distribution space uh, for example of images we don't have any connection between the value of a pixel uh, and the semantic uh, counterpart of that uh, pixel value Uh, but once we transform uh, it into a a vector space at least uh, theoretically we can uh, make conclusions for example we have uh, a 1024 dimensional uh, vector uh, as a representation of that uh, image in this case if we uh, examine this uh, vector space, we can make conclusions uh, Or this uh, value in the index zero in cause uh, the feature of uh, th- this feature of uh, image. For example, it can encode uh, the size of uh, a specific object or uh, the color value of a specific uh, object or Uh, maybe some more uh, abstract uh, feature of uh, objects. So uh, this enables us uh, to search it more uh, efficiently instead of uh, otherwise our uh, values are uh, actually distributed to a, a very a wide range and we don't have uh, such uh,
0: interpreted I- interpretations uh, in that uh, distribution space yeah yeah that makes sense it's kind of like a very unique high variant and also like um, in some sense it's like waste of space because. We are not communicating that much more information by by sort of encoding all these pixels, but we could actually extract some features and patterns in the image. I think some early work in this was done using, if I remember, it was called a Gabor filter or some other ways of kind of smoothing your image and trying to learn uh, what features you have. For instance, if you try to differentiate uh, between spruce and uh, wide leaf trees, right? So like for the purposes of, you know, kind of uh, keeping one one trees and then maybe removing the others. But, um, uh, but, but I think it wasn't as efficient uh, perhaps as compared to deep learning because in deep learning, uh, as far as I understand it, basically like learns without features in many ways, right? It learns from the data and then you should have some uh, target function that you're optimizing for so it can re- recalibrate the weights inside it.
1: Yeah, uh, exactly. Actually, uh, what is most differentiating uh, feature of deep learning is deep learning uh, is actually uh, used to uh, learn the parameters of uh, complex uh, functions instead of uh, manually uh, tuning them before uh, deep learning we uh, already uh, had most of the filters we uh, currently have, but uh, the parameters of uh, such filters uh, were supposed to to be manually tuned by uh, experts uh, in that domain. Uh, But in deep learning, we learn those parameters directly uh, from uh, data. Uh, And uh, as you said, uh, actually, the beginning of metric learning is also uh, in uh, dimensionality reduction. Uh, We have uh, the most popular contrastive loss, for example, and the first introduction of uh, contrastive loss is in uh, 2005, Uh, the original purpose of uh, that function actually uh, to uh, reduce dimensionality of uh, high dimensional uh, inputs rather than uh, a vector source or uh, anything else. Uh, So actually uh, just uh, tried to reduce the dimensionality of uh, high dimensional input to use uh, those uh, lower dimensional input
0: as features to other models. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds exciting. Actually, before you brought this up, I didn't think that way because um, I was um, um, experimenting in my team also with things like product quantization right so you do have already the vectors computed by the neural network but you you could actually quantize them even further so you save space and uh, maybe of course you introduce some overlaps that might uh, decrease your precision but slightly but but uh, you're going to you're going to like uh, save a ton of space and make your search more efficient so it's kind of almost like you could think of dimensionality reduction in so many different levels and ways as you as you reason about your data, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, actually, metric learning is uh, is itself a, a type of dimension reduction. But uh, even after you apply ma- metric learning uh, and uh, like uh, vector encoding to your data, uh, you still have a, a high dimensional uh, vector. Uh, You have, for example, 10, uh, for uh, dimensional uh, data uh, times 32 bits uh, for a single uh, float. So it's it's already a huge uh, data when you uh, have, uh, for example, uh, millions of uh, samples So uh, you can still uh, actually uh, apply some quantization uh, methods to uh, get even uh, smaller uh, representations from that one. And this can be also uh, hierarchical, uh, meaning that uh, you can get uh, several representations of the uh, same sample uh, at different levels of uh, information encoded uh, in that feature space.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So I was also thinking, like, um, if you could give, like, some practical example or setting, you know, where um, I could start thinking about deep learning, uh, metric learning, and also, like, could could you sort of, point us in the direction of what tools are available so that i don't think we need to reinvent everything from scratch but maybe there are some practices also best practices available you know to to structure this process Uh, can you give some advice on that
1: yeah sure Uh, for a starters example uh, actually metric learning is uh, best known for its use in Uh, face recognition, but personally, I don't support uh, use of machine learning to process biometric information. So I give an example from our everyday life. Actually, we uh, almost every day use it, smart reply. Uh, The feature found in, for example, uh, Gmail, LinkedIn, uh, and other Uh, Messaging apps. Um, Actually, it is uh, trained from uh, a large collection uh, of uh, conversation histories in these uh, platforms. Uh, Basically, uh, they just like uh, the example we taught in the beginning uh, image and uh, textual a unified uh, vector space, they uh, construct a unified vector space for uh, conversation histories and single sentences. So uh, in any uh, moment of conversation, uh, you encode the history of that conversation uh, to retrieve uh, most uh, relevant Replies to that uh, history. Uh, And you can uh, show them as uh, suggestions uh, to the users, and uh, users can pick one of them. Uh, And what is uh, exciting uh, with this setup, you can also uh, log the chosen uh, reply and Uh, you can continue uh, improving your model uh, from direct direct, uh, feedback from your uh, actual users. So it's uh, it's a really practical use case of uh, metric learning. And for practitioners who want to uh, start uh, experimenting with, uh, with metric learning, actually, there are lots of uh, tools to solve uh, various problems in uh, metric learning. So uh, in the uh, context of deep learning uh, model development itself, we have uh, several uh, libraries, such as PyTorch metric learning uh, and TensorFlow uh, similarity. Uh, there are other uh, libraries as well, but I think uh, these are uh, most uh, mature uh, libraries and most, uh, how, how shall I say, uh, versatile uh, libraries to t- tackle uh, with different data types. Uh, On the other hand, uh, like uh, for visualization, we have this TensorFlow projector, it's a a browser-based tool, so you can examine your uh, embeddings easily with uh, that one, and uh, there are also Vector search databases—they are uh, increasing in uh, numbers. Uh, but of course, uh, <laughs> I am a fan of uh, quadrant uh, because it's uh, really uh, doing a, a great job um, with uh, with an extensive filtering support for uh, a variety of uh, data types uh, and is uh, doing this uh, v- very efficiently, very elegant uh, uh, in only uh, 40 uh, megabytes. Uh, so it, it opens up uh, various uh, opportunities to put uh, your metric learning model uh, into production uh, and to combine vector search with sparse for search as well uh so you you can uh, just con- filter your uh data based on uh their payload information at the si- same time as uh, vector search um yeah i think uh, d- these are uh other than that I uh, beyond Beside my research and engineering practices, uh, I'm also maintaining uh, a repository called awesome metric learning. uh, And uh, I'm regularly uh, sharing uh, new uh, developments in the domain of metric learning with uh, personal uh, annotations. So uh, I think it might be also quite uh, helpful to uh, for those who want to find the ways uh, in this uh, domain
0: yeah that's awesome thank you I will I will uh, certainly make sure to um, add all of these links in in the uh, description notes um, in the notes to this podcast and uh, um, usually um, all of these podcasts that I do you know they have a lot of links that Actually, you almost can use this as an educational material. And thanks so much for for adding so much information here. And uh, um, and and I actually um, wanted to drill a little bit again into that example, that brilliant example you gave about predicting sort of what's next when I type right actually I use this feature quite a lot and especially like when you're on the go and today I think um, I've used it somewhere was a Gmail you know I I was on the go and I had only one finger right so just holding my phone as I go and there was a question and um, the answer was something yes it happened or yes it did and and maybe it wasn't the best sort of semantical choice or maybe not the most elegant choice linguistically like maybe I would Add more color, but because I was on the go, it was fine to save that, you know, few minutes and uh, don't don't be distracted by the phone. So I just press that button and and off it goes. And um, so that's a fantastic feature. Um, um, so I I wanted to sort of like open up the process a little bit of of metric learning in this case. Basically, I imagine and please correct me if I'm wrong. Like as an input, I would have let's say pair of sentences that what was the input and what was the prediction, and, and that prediction could be either curated by experts or we could have mined it from the logs, whatever. So let's say we have a corpus like this, right? So we can employ a sequence-to-sequence model or some other model to actually train like our first, uh, first predictor. Um, so it, at which point would you start thinking and how exactly would you start thinking about metric learning? Like, okay, how can I change the behavior of my model like will i replace like last layer of my neural network with like different layer that i have learned from metric learning can you a bit open up this this kitchen for me thanks
1: yeah actually this uh, smart reply uh, has uh, is on uh, paper by google uh, as well and they uh, they are really doing a great job uh, to, 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 describe the whole logic to whole uh, design, uh, decisions, uh, d- behind this, uh, feature, uh, as you already said, uh, the suggested replies are, uh, not the, are not the best, uh, the most specific, uh, r- replies that you can, uh, imagine. But uh, this is uh, actually uh, are by design because uh, they do not uh, generate those replies, but they, uh, they have a, a large collection of uh, such, uh, such replies and they should be uh, as flexible as possible to fit into different uh, circumstances so they shouldn't have any uh, specific uh, references to a, a specific uh, sentence in the conversation. So they that, that, that should be uh, generic enough uh, to apply almost any uh, conversation. Uh, for the training side, uh, yeah, actually they filter uh, a large collection from the uh, d- d- different platforms uh, they are uh, running uh, Gmail and other uh, platforms and they filter uh, short replies uh, and uh, semantically uh, more broad uh, samples uh, th- 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 samples such as uh, as you, Uh, gave as an example, Uh, yes, I did, or no, I didn't. Uh, Does it help uh, for such examples? Uh, And the actual uh, training algorithm uh, works uh, like this. They uh, actually come up with a a very creative, uh, very clever uh, loss function for uh, just to train this this model. Uh, They have uh, only uh, a pair of two samples and there's uh, no other uh, label or information. Uh, We only have one input and one uh, ground truth reply. We have no other uh, scoring no other uh, label or uh, anything else. So uh, we only get uh, a batch of, um, for example, uh, n samples, and we encode uh, those uh, two n samples because we have uh, two uh, samples per uh, pair. Uh, and we end up with two n uh, samples, and once we encode them uh, with our uh, encoder, we can uh, compute a distance uh, matrix between uh, the, these um, outputs of the encoder. A distance matrix uh, is a two-dimensional uh, matrix to define. Every distance uh, value between all possible uh, pairs in a a collection. So we have a matrix of size n times n. And we already uh, have uh, these samples as pairs. We already uh, know their. uh, accompanying uh, target samples. For the uh, sample, uh, for the first sample at index zero, the accompanying uh, sample should also be at index uh, zero. For uh, sample at index one, uh, the accompanying sample uh, sample should be at index uh, one. So we can generate uh, these uh, target labels just based on this information. So uh, it's like a categorical classification uh, now. Uh, So for the first uh, sample uh, in the uh, pair at index zero, the uh, categorical label should be uh, zero and others all uh, index uh, values should be uh, wrong. So we can just uh, encode this information as a, a one hot uh, encoding and we can simply use Crohn's uh, entropy uh, loss once we uh, encode this information as one hot encoding and we can uh, train this uh, model, with this loss. So it is uh, called multiple negative ranking loss uh, because in in some way we rank uh, all possible uh, replies uh, in a batch uh, with multiple uh, negatives and only one positive uh,
0: sample. Yeah, and, and so, um, so you would you would train this network with this um, with this loss function, and so the output will be what? Like, will it be like the optimal yeah. metric or optimal? Yeah, are,
1: once we are, uh, train this uh, uh, model, uh, we end up with a, a model that can uh, encode uh, a, a sentence. Uh, in such a way that that uh, vector can retrieve the most relevant uh, vectors from uh, a collection of uh, the possible uh, replies. So uh, after we train this model, we uh, encode all possible uh, replies and uh, index them in a, a vector database. And at the inference time, uh, we import the user's input again with this model and uh, make a query, uh, a vector search query to that, that pre-indexed uh, database of uh, possible replies. And we can get, for example, uh, k nearest neighbors uh, to that uh, vectors
0: to suggest, uh, to use it. Yeah. I mean, after you explain this, like, um, it, 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 to me, like the, the mental image that evokes is that, uh, we sort of like learn rather than learning the metric, we're actually learning the vectors themselves. Like we're learning the best re- vector representation for our object to satisfy some goal, right? Let's say, uh, that, uh, for this sentence, you know, the reply, the closest reply should be this, in some sense.
1: Yeah, exactly. Actually, the model learns a, a representation that uh, satisfies uh, the satisfies our uh, purpose. Uh, so in some ways, we can uh, freely pick uh, any distance uh, metric uh, based on this, uh, intuition
0: yeah yeah
1: so the second part of your uh, question uh, when we can think about uh, metric learning actually uh, metric learning can be uh, applied to almost any uh, domain uh, of problems but there are some particular cases uh, where metric learning Uh, really shines over uh, other uh, alternatives. These are uh, actually uh, data scarce uh, regimes, especially uh, for uh, labeled. uh, If you are uh, short for labeled data, you can uh, still uh, do a pretty good job with, for example, autoencoders, as we we already uh, discussed. Uh, previously um, and also uh, if you have uh, rapidly changing uh, distributions uh, it's, uh, again uh, very helpful uh, and uh, if you have uh, for example a very a very high number of uh, classes again uh, metric learning can Uh, do a good job. Finally, uh, metric learning uh, is uh, one of the best way to to be able to uh, actually uh, increase the performance of uh, machine learning models even after uh, training. In normal deep learning training, there is uh, no way to increase the performance of uh, a model after training uh, is complete. But uh, in uh, metric learning, this is uh, quite possible. Uh, For example, instead of uh, just uh, train a classification uh, model to make a probability distribution over a a set of uh, classes, we can train a metric learning model, uh, and encode samples with that uh, model to store somewhere. And uh, during the inference, we can query that uh, store to get uh, most similar uh, chain nearest neighbors and uh, decide on the uh, predicted category based on the majority was what of uh those k nearest neighbors this is uh, called uh, k classification uh, in fact uh, and in in the practical side on the practical side you can uh, continue to add uh, new samples uh, to that store uh with, without uh, and you need to uh, retrain the model. Uh, and once you add uh, new samples to that uh, your uh, model pa- performance uh, will, uh, will also uh, increase. And also uh, there's another uh, use case, for example, a more recent uh, approach by uh, DeepMind uh, up until now, the only way to uh, make AI uh, smarter uh, is usually um, re- train a bigger and bigger uh, language model. Uh, but uh, in the most recent study by uh, Deep uh, DeepMind, they uh, augment language models With retrieval uh, capability. This means um, actually they um, encode and um, store a large collection of uh, corpus uh, in a vector uh, database. And during the inference, uh, they uh, query this database to uh, get most similar most relevant uh, sentences most uh, relevant uh, text uh, to the user input and they combine uh, them to uh, to feed uh, feed to the model Uh, and with this technique they can uh, achieve the um, same performance as gpt3 with Uh, with uh, 25x uh, less parameters. So it's uh, really uh, a very efficient way of uh, AI. Uh, So I'm also quite happy to see the direction of uh, AI towards a more uh, efficient one with uh, metric learning as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic and I think it's like a good impact on the planning because I don't think we want to spend too much electricity on, or power on <laughs> training neural networks. Uh, yeah, if, exactly.
1: If we- and it also uh, enables uh, democrat- democratization of uh, deep learning because uh, not everyone has the same resources as these uh, large companies uh, as uh, Google, Facebook and uh, OpenAI. So I think it's
0: also uh, important for that reason as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, you you gave quite quite a lot of detail on metric learning. Of course, uh, there is a ton to to learn, and I I even s- I've seen like a book cited on one of the uh, metric learning pages uh, that I found through your uh, awesome metric learning resource. Um, and um, now that we touched a bit on on sort of where the AI is also going and, and how to make it more efficient, I also like to ask a question of why sort of this magical question which drills into into your motivation as to uh, why why at all you are in this space let's say deep learning and quadrant vector search um, and, and and also specifically metric learning. Uh, can you a bit elaborate on the philosophy that drives you here uh,
1: yes sure. Uh... Actually, uh, what motivates uh, me to work with metric learning is... uh, uh, Actually, it is the potential to to approach many different problems uh, very uh, efficiently. Um, before uh, metric learning, actually, um, you need to uh, train very different models to uh, solve uh, very different problems. But with uh, metric learning, you can uh, train a single model and you can use the very same model uh, to solve very uh, different problems. Uh, and this is also uh, another side that makes uh, metric learning uh, efficient. Uh, actually, metric learning uh, has a great potential, but you also uh, need a great uh, tools to put it uh, into production as well. Um, uh, for example, uh, up until now, there was uh, no way to um, combine uh, vector search with uh, payload information. Uh, even if you make a connection, it, it was not uh, so practical because you lose some information because you you do not uh, you you could not filter uh the uh two systems of uh, information uh, at the same time quadrant uh is uh doing a, gr- a great job by uh, combining uh vector search with uh filterable payload uh information so it opens up uh quite uh quite a few new uh opportunities uh, for that one, uh, you can uh, filter your information uh, based on uh, if uh, geographic uh, geographic uh, place, uh, for example, or another sparse uh, category, uh, a, a numeric value, uh, or uh, anything uh, else. Uh, while at the same time doing a, a vector search. So I think it's uh, really exciting. Um, for One of the most uh, common problems in uh, AI, uh, you actually do the research, but you don't have the uh, required tooling to make it practical in the Real work, so I think uh, it's quite important to have uh, such tools as uh, Quadrant to achieve uh, very different, uh, very difficult and challenging problems uh, very elegant and
0: efficiently. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's quite deep. Thank you so much for sharing this. And it's like um, um, I can also it, it also resonates with me because. Um, in many ways, you know, deep learning, on one hand, uh, maybe some people feel like it's kind of overhyped, and there is so much material on the web. On the other hand, when you start doing it yourself, you might end up, you know, going into down the rabbit hole, and you don't know all the tools, as you said, you don't know all the best practices. And also, like, before we had um, vector databases, you couldn't actually well, a- apply this. Like, okay, you, you, you could, of course, uh, build some nice demo and, you know, throw a web page and just ask somebody, okay, type something here and my neural network will do something. But now, like, you could kind of scale this further and index your embeddings and see the, the end result of what you're doing through, through the retrieval process. So I think uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, um, that opens up a lot of opportunities. Um, so that's, that's super cool.
1: Yeah, exactly. uh, actually, um, once we have uh, such uh, tooling, the domain is also uh, improving uh, more uh, rapidly, and also uh, the improvements in the domain also uh, foster the development of uh, such tools, so I think uh, it's like uh, twofold, uh, and uh, it, it will be uh, metric learning will be in a uh, better place uh, in the future with this uh, rapid developments uh, in the domain.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking, like, there's like a ton of material. I'm sure we'll have to digest. At least I will have to digest a lot of it uh, and, and see how I can apply this. And uh, thankfully, you have, um, you know, you have this awesome metric learning resource on GitHub that we can check out. Um, we'll make sure to uh, leave it in the notes. And if 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 some of us want to kind of work with you or interact with you. Um, can you make like a little announcement where where we can join forces and kind of learn more about metric learning and maybe contribute to this field uh, together with you? Uh,
1: yeah, sure. Uh, actually, uh, I have several uh, a- a announcements, maybe. <laughs> uh, first... Um, Beyond my uh, research and engineering uh, it's a side, I'm also a, a community guy, a guy, and we have a Discord server uh, at Quadrant uh, where we uh, hold paper reading uh, clubs. Uh, we had the first one about contrastive uh, laws, and we, we will also uh, have another session uh, about uh, triplet loss, and I also uh, wrote uh, wrote an intuitional uh, triplet loss uh, post. Uh, Our approach will be like, uh, after I will uh, write such intuitional uh, posts about papers and then we will hold uh, q and sessions uh, in our uh, discourse servers. So uh, everyone uh, who is curious about uh, metric learning can join the discourse server uh, to uh, enjoy this uh, discussion. Uh, apart, apart from that one, uh, the, beside my professional life, uh, I'm uh, recognized uh, as a Google developer expert on machine learning uh, on the, uh, the volunteering side, community side. Uh, and this year uh, at Google Summer of Call, uh, I will serve uh, as a, a TensorFlow mentor for the TensorFlow similarity Python package. Uh, it's a, a package For uh, metric learning in the TensorFlow uh, ecosystem. So, uh, university students and fresh uh, graduates can apply to uh, Google Summer of Code if they want to uh, work with me in this uh, effort and contribute uh, to the field. Yeah,
0: that's fantastic. I think. um uh google summer of code is an exciting place to be and there are so many projects but it's great to learn that you are leading uh, the metric learning exploration there and i'm sure there will be interest uh, towards it and uh, we'll make sure to also leave the uh relevant link in the show notes on this um yeah thanks so much yusuf this was um this was a pleasure to to discuss with you I, I, I feel like I dipped some of my fingers in the water of uh, metric learning. I think there is still a ton to learn, and thanks so much for, you know, introducing it from so multi- multiple angles. Really enjoyed this conversation. Uh,
1: thank you, Dimitri, again for this uh, great opportunity. Uh, I hope uh, t- t- uh, the, uh, the audience also uh, enjoyed. Uh, it as well, and I hope uh, it would be helpful for uh, those who, who, who are interested in uh, metric learning.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Thank you so much. I learned it ton, and I uh, hope uh, I'll, I'll also see you um, maybe doing some presentations or reading your blogs uh, to learn more about it. Thank, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, bye-bye.